I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have Emily Lyons. This was a really fascinating interview for me because I didn't quite know what to expect when I was getting into it. Well, well, first of all, Emily is the CEO of Femme Fatale Media Group, among other companies. She's got a bunch of companies, uh, and and you'll hear about that as we discuss. But we had been connected, I think, just tangentially through a mutual friend, through a a past guest of the show, actually, Paul Paul Nadeau, who was on the show, a crisis negotiator. Go back and listen to that episode, too. That was a great one. Um, But I think they were connected and then somehow we got connected and I didn't really know what to expect when I had invited her on. I had originally wanted to explore mental health and entrepreneurship. I think that was the original motivation, especially being a woman, uh, a female entrepreneur, and and if that was different and the the unique challenges uh, and, and potentially benefits and opportunities that that presents. That's not. We did a little bit of that, but that's not really, as you'll hear, the direction that the interview went in at all. I was absolutely fascinated by her story and touched uh, by her her stories about her sister, uh, in particular, and, and the passion and the philanthropy that that has uh, inspired in Emily. So this was, uh, you know, they're all my favorite interviews, but this is one of my favorite interviews, I think. So uh, please enjoy my conversation with Emily Lyon, CEO of Femme Fatale Media Group, here on So Called Normal. So my name is Emily Lyons, and I am a serial entrepreneur. So I started my first company in 2009, and I've gone on to launch several other companies. I've won numerous awards, and yeah, we operate across North America and Australia and the UK. Serial entrepreneur. Yes. What, what does that mean? <laughs> serial <laughs> entrepreneur. So I've started, yeah, several different companies, so... The first company, Femfatel Media Group, is an mm-hmm. event staffing and marketing agency. We also have a public relations division. And then I went on to launch Lions Elite, which is a luxury matchmaking agency. And then I went on to launch True Glue, which is my my little baby. <laughs> it's a, a natural lash adhesive lime, the only one in the world, actually. So that's carried at a bunch of different places like the detox market, anthropology, mm-hmm. urban outfitters, places like that. And then... You know, we've launched new clean cosmetics to go with that. Okay, so yeah. so fairly close to the same industry. Yeah, they'll like. kind of piggyback on each other for the most part. Yeah, how many companies? So th- that was what five companies? I think they said <laughs> you met, or however many it is. I guess that's what a serial entrepreneur is. Yeah. So, um, how old were you when you started your first company? Femme I Fatale? was twenty three. Twenty three. Wow. And and what yeah. prompted you to do that to start a company? Uh, I had received a book from my sister, Julia, called Career Renegade, and it was all about how to make a great living doing what you love. And yeah, at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I worked as a promotional model, and I loved it. So I thought, if I could make money being like a full-time promotional model. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then I set off and... So instead of just looking for a job... (laughs) (laughs) I never worked well... For other people. <laughs> right, right. I think that's actually an important motivator. And we've had a number of business founders in on the show so far. And, and that seems to be a common thing. That, you yeah. Know, if, it, you know, it's hard to run with the crowd it when is. you could be doing it yourself. It is. It is very hard to run. I went through a lot of jobs. I worked 
pretty much everything across the spectrum. What was the what was the most obscure or strangest? Job? I worked in a garlic farm. A garlic farm. <laughs> yeah. So actually, it's and funny. I would stink. Funny you mentioned that. We just went to the garlic festival oh, uh, in okay. Toronto, Very which nice. I had never been to a garlic festival before, oh. but it was extremely enjoyable. <laughs> I really had a okay. nice time, um, but it was different. It was different. I, also, funny enough, uh, I moved to Australia when I was nineteen to work as a nanny. And while I was there, I got a part-time job as a cleaner. Mm-hmm. And I worked for this woman, Tanya. She had a company called Escape to Byron. So it was me and Tanya and her daughter, Amethyst. And mm. her daughter, so the three of us would work together all the time. And Amethyst wanted to be a rapper. And so we would, like, help her with different things. I went to watch her um, do Battle of the Bands, and they mm-hmm. booed her. But um, oh, no. her mom was, like, such a driving force. Like, she's just such a great mom, right? And people would give her a hard time, and she'd come mm. in and say, like, you know— People are saying, why are you investing in this crazy dream? Mm. She's a 14-year-old white girl from Australia that wants to be a rapper. Right. She's a Yazalia. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it worked out all right. Yeah. Well, she would joke around and be like, don't worry, mom, I'll pay back when I'm famous. Yeah. And, and did she ever pay her back? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Big time. But it's so funny because... At that time, like, she got so much flack, and it does right. seem ridiculous because, like, but yeah. she, like, she knew she was going to be a star. Yeah. She was, yeah, yeah. yeah. She went by, at that time, her rap name was Baby Lady. Baby Lady. Yeah. So, Iggy, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still talk to, Tan- to Tanya, her mom. You do. Her mom's yeah. lovely, yeah. yeah she's- so, I, I'm, I'm fascinating by this, though. I mean, all of the different <laughs> jobs and then all of the different companies, there's something happening there. There's an energy happening. I don't know what it is. Is it, is it restlessness? Is it interest? Yeah. What you is know, it? when I'm on my laptop, I usually have like 20 tabs open. Oh, That's yeah. kind of how my brain is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Are there some that have been open for three months that you, <laughs> you just don't want to close? That's Sometimes it's often. <laughs> Like I just go on a spree and I just click 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 oh, click yeah. and just close them all because I'm yeah. like just stop or you're never going to yeah yeah but I think that's what it is or there's just like some sort of passion and I have to follow it mm. I, I'm fascinated by why you do that because again not everybody would do that some people are content just to be stuck I shouldn't say stuck um, to settle it I mean. It's not really, my mind doesn't really work that way. And I think Mm. that's the way with a lot of entrepreneurs, Mm. you know, it's not, it's, I, I would have started Femme Fatale for free. Right. You know, I wouldn't have, I, it was never monetary. I remember I made a list and it was like my dream list at the beginning. And it was like, if I can make $30,000 a year, I will be happy. Mm. That's my goal number. I can support myself. I can pay for my little one bedroom basement apartment and, I, and I'll be <laughs> so content. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then you got a taste of it. And <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's like it's never enough. But I mean, yeah, it's not, yeah. it's just you You need to make more to, you know, to fund your new visions, to, right. to bring on those employees that right. can help bring you to your new goals or to whatever that may be. Yeah. So, 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 so uh, you just said something very interesting. Um, maybe it'll never be enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when when will you when will you know or will you know or will you will you always be chasing that next big goal? I don't know. I think I I'll probably always be chasing something in some way for sure. Yeah. yeah. Is there are, are those two things maybe in are they in contradiction to each other? I guess finding contentment uh, at some point if you'll ever retire. I don't know any <laughs> entrepreneurs that ever retire. It seems like, but you know, you're still a, a young woman um, who's been very successful in business already by any standard. Um, so, is that how you define success? Always doing something? <sighs> how I define success? No, I don't know. And I don't think that I would ever be content. Mm. 
Tell me about the biggest part for me success wise is just having the freedom. You know, I don't have to go by anybody else's schedule. I can do what I want. I can I can make risky choices. I can stay home all week. I can, you know, and that's been the best thing. And, you know, that I can help my family and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Nobody to tell you what to do. And it's, you know, it's great to just not have to look at like when you go to the grocery store, you don't have to look for like, you know, when you're poor and you grow up, you know, you that's how your brain works. Absolutely. I grew up poor and that scarcity mentality never leaves you, I think. Yeah, no. And that's still, I I squirrel away a lot, you know, because. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's how you're raised. I I read an interesting um, thing a while ago about how uh, my entire mother's side of the family are are chronically overweight, uh, generally speaking. And I I was fascinated about uh, by this, why this was happening. My father's uh, side is so long. Really? So so I think part of the reason was that her generation uh, and my mother was one of uh, 17 kids. Wow. I mentioned off mic that we're Irish Catholics. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any other Irish Catholics listening, uh, understand what I mean. Be fruitful and multiply. Uh, <laughs> so she's one of 17 and they grew up in a little three bedroom, half a half a duplex. Oh, uh, right. That's cozy. <laughs> uh, very cozy. So they pretty much lived off of bread and soup for their entire life. Yeah. And they were told whenever they sit down to a meal that you have to finish every single yes. last bite because they didn't know where the next meal was going to yes, come from. That's like my dad. Right? So so I think that was, I never fully appreciated before that, wow, that's that generation that you can't waste a possible, a single that's scrap. That's exactly that how plate, they are. Right? They grew up on ketchup sandwiches. Ketchup said. sandwiches. But I remember yeah. we went to the X the one time, my dad and my grandma, who of course were very, very poor. She, they had, she had all her kids and they were dirt poor while my father was growing up. But I had nachos and cheese and I was like a teenager. You know, you get those nachos and cheese Mm -hmm. and I'd finish Mm -hmm. and there was just the cheese left. And my grandma was like, don't throw that out. Right. And ate the cheese with a spoon. (laughs) (laughs) I was horrified. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's their mentality. Don't throw anything away. So is that how you grew up as well? I mean, not to psychoanalyze you or anything, but I'm, I'm fascinated in why you have the drive that you do. Is that how you grew up? No. Not so much. I, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, again, we're not. This isn't the let's do therapy with Emily podcast. <laughs> but, but I, I think, mean, it, well, I, I mean, I, I, I think it's helpful um, for other young women in particular uh, who aspire to be you. I mean, it, it's 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 um, or even just to start one business. I never I really fit in. Like, as I look back over the years now, like I never really fit in. I never fit in at school. Mm. Like I just felt. I didn't want to be there. Why is that? Why didn't you fit in? Um, I think I had a lot of social anxiety okay. growing up, for sure. Um, yeah, and I just, I don't know. I, I, I could never concentrate in a classroom and things like that. And I ended up dropping out in grade 10. Really? Um, what was going on in your life at the time? You just didn't. My or... sister was quite sick and our parents split up and it was a very bad breakup. And mm. there was a custody battle and stuff like that. My sister and, and I went to live with our father, mm-hmm. but my mom took my brother and they had a battle over him. And mm. so it was a lot going on. And Julia, my sister, was sick and going back and forth from Toronto. We grew up in Stratford. Okay. And so it was just kind of me, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just like a by myself kind of thing. And I hated school. So it was like, well, I haven't really been going. Nobody noticed. So mm. I'm not going to go anymore. Mm-hmm. And I remember my dad, he didn't mean it in a in a mean way, but he said to me, maybe one day you know, you can amount to ma- a manager at McDonald's or something mm. like that. Like, there's never much belief in me. Right. 
I know that I did. I, I made a lot of mistakes in my teenage years that I really regretted deeply mm. that led me to going to Australia. And I felt the need to prove myself, sort mm. of, uh, to prove to, like, my family and friends that I wasn't a degenerate mm. or, you know, a loser, which was what I felt like in my mind a lot of the time. Mm. So I wonder how much of your, your ongoing drive is that? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think my ongoing drive is just because I love it now. No, well, it, you love it now, <laughs> yes. And I think we learn to love these things that that give us passion. But it yeah. seems like it started as this way of proving them wrong. Oh, absolutely. Right? It was 100% that way. And then once I got in, you get, you know, just like the success when you achieve something, when you set out to do right. something and you, you do it, and it's just so rewarding. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, there's nothing else better. It's like, people ask me what I do in my free time. And it's like, well, I work because <laughs> it's fun for me. Well, and I mentioned to you when you first came in, um, people ask me what my interests are. It's like, yeah, I pretty much only do mental health related stuff. <laughs> yeah. I have no other transferable like, skills. Like. I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> I read about it. I talk about yeah. it. I, like, and, you know, I, I think that, sure, it might be a one-trick pony, but if you find what you love, why not double down yeah. or triple down? Yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So, do you remember – I guess you – I can't remember if you mentioned it um, earlier or since we started recording, but your first big success where you first got that hit of reinforcement. Yeah, yeah this is what I – this is what I want to do. Yeah. I do uh, – it was the first corporate booking. Mm. But it's really any small success early on was so huge to me. Right, especially like, when you don't have any or you yeah, think you don't have any yeah, at first. Yeah, like the smallest amount was – I would have done it for free just to get the booking yeah. just because I loved it. But yeah. yeah, especially because anybody that I had talked to told me not to do it. Right. So it was so much more. Like, so why did you do it anyway? I mean, again, that idea of, of pushing back. <laughs> I don't know. You're a Once I had the idea for it, it was like – it was set in my mind and it was just, that's what's happening. Like, I, Did you ever doubt that you could do it? I mean, so often I get I get harebrained ideas for stuff all the time. I mean, and then Now I, think, no. I do because my ideas are so much larger scale. Right, but right. I mean, not really back then. It was more so just like there was a problem in my mind and how do we solve it? Right. So I had a vision of what I wanted to do. And how did how was I going to get there? And that's really yeah. what business is a lot of the time is problem solving. Taking those risks too and, and really being able to throw yourself into well, it. Well, I think too because I started with nothing and I was right. used to living, you know, modestly that I wasn't splashy or anything. I didn't bring on any overhead. Right. I did. I utilized any free service that I could find. And then when I got a return on it, then I would invest in, in areas like that. But I religiously right. watched my ROI. So – if something wasn't giving me back the return, I cut it out. Right. A lot of people think they need all this money to start a business. But, I mean, depending on what it is, of course, my first one being service-based, I just right. needed me. Right. Like I could use social media to market it. I used free uh, email marketing platforms. Yeah. Um, blogging just was me writing it. And yeah. I did an exchange for services on a bunch of things. So like with my web designer, I promoted his events in exchange for him building my website. Right. I, I like this as an analogy as well for recovery. I mean, we talk about recovery on this show all the time yeah. from, you know, not only mental health problems and illnesses, because a lot of people experience those, but not everybody. But everybody knows adversity. Everybody knows struggle. Yeah. Right. And I like this idea of feeling like you have nothing 
either that you've never had anything or that you have nothing left, but then being able to rely on your grit and determination and internal yeah. resources to, to be able to power through. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that sounds very much like what you did in, in your business, your, your serial business creating <laughs> yeah. as well. Um, however, it, it's not always been easy, I understand. And, and with your permission, I, I'd, I'd like to yeah, explore that sure. a little bit more with you. So now as I, like, as I look back now, I can see that I always had you know, social anxieties and things like that, which led to me abusing alcohol as a teenager because I would so badly want to bring that down mm-hmm. whenever mm-hmm. I'd be at like a party or things like that. I would drink to excess right. for many, many years. And it led to severe anxiety by the time I was 20. When I moved to Australia, I got so much worse. So I had agoraphobia. Mm. I wouldn't leave my house for about a month at a time. This I, was before or after you went This was when I was in Australia. When you were in Australia. When I was first okay. in Sydney. I would do like calls over the phone with a psychiatrist because I couldn't, I would get to the bus stop and I would just panic and I would not know where I was, you know, mm. what happens. And I tried different medications and nothing really helped. And I ended up seeing a naturopath and it did wonders. Really? But um, yeah. yeah, I ended up moving back home and things were better for a while. But again, I got back into the partying phase, drinking heavily, trying to self-medicate. And the panic got extreme again. The panic, the anxiety got extreme again. Mm. And it started manifesting itself in physical reactions. I would have severe hives mm. and I would I would constantly be at the walk-in or emerge with mm-hmm. different things. And like now as it, it turned out, I, I did so many allergy testing and now I haven't had hives or a reaction like that since really? I had the severe panic. So it was really manifesting itself physically for me. Yeah. So what does a panic attack feel like, at least in your experience? A panic attack, you cannot breathe. Everything is just sort of dizzy and it feels like you're physically going to have a heart attack or yeah. you know, you're going to lose your mind. Like you cannot think straight. Everything is just zooming by. And it's just a mad panic. So like, Mm -hmm. I need to get to the hospital was the thought in my head. Like, I'm having a heart attack. I'm going to die. This is physical. I need help. So you didn't even know that it was a panic attack at the time. You thought maybe it was a heart attack or something. I remember the one time I went to the hospital and emerged and they were doing like all the, they had like the the heart rate monitor on me and stuff. And they like had other doctors running around me. And then they're like, wait a minute. I, I think it's not as bad as we think. Because they started to realize like, okay, something's not actually really wrong. Right, this, right. Like physically wrong. But Well, and if you're having a panic attack and then everybody else around you is panicking too, yeah. <laughs> that might not well, be the most. Because I was so certain that it was something physically wrong with me. And right. that was like the first few times when I went there and they sent me for the initial testing for my heart and they did the brain scan. They put you in the tube. And I remember the doctor said to me, what do you think is wrong with you? And I said, I think I have a brain tumor or I have a heart problem. You mm. know, something is causing these crazy episodes. And then that's when he said, after everything came back negative, he was like, I think you need to see a psychiatrist. How and did I you said, respond to that? I, I, no, this is physical. I'm not creating this in my mind. Like my body is not, I'm not doing this to myself. Like I'm not physically making myself sick like my heart is racing my chest is burning like i have chest Mm -hmm. pains like i can't breathe like i could not get air in i was like this is not something that i'm i'm thinking in my mind but then the more you read about it once you 
you know, start treatment or start even just reading books about panic disorder and how your body triggers that response because mm. it is the fight or flight syndrome. Yeah. So like your heart speeds up, which causes like causes the pains in your chest. You your breathing speeds up. You get so hot and sweaty and mm. your pupils dilate. So your pupils get huge. Yeah. So it's like, but to somebody, it's just like a. It, and sometimes it used to, for me, when I was in the thick of it, it would just come on out of nowhere. I would be doing nothing. I would be watching TV and all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. And I'm trying to catch my breath and it's like the room is spinning and your heart is just racing. And it's like, I can't think straight. I don't know where I am. I'm going crazy. I'm going to die. And were you ever able to identify any triggers for it or it just came literally out of nowhere? They started to do back when I started getting treatment I would say like what triggered that things so then you can usually trace it back right, right so it would usually be like okay i thought this 10 minutes before and then it just kind of right. spiraled in my mind you start getting stressed about something so you start breathing like shallow yeah. which just kind of sets off the full-blown panic yeah, and then because the not getting it, the oxygen it, it, you know. it they bounce off of each other sure. so the the initial reaction with your thoughts causes the reaction in your body which increases the panic sure which increases the reaction so like i can't breathe so then you're trying more. Why can't so I then breathe? You, and then, you're, yeah. you're getting yeah, faint. Yeah. So it's just all the physical reactions is justifying your thoughts of you're going to die. You're right. going to go crazy. Right. You're going to lose your mind. Right. And then deeper into the spiral you go. Yeah. And you just keep yeah. going. In the, and then once you realize that, you know, I remember I saw someone and they said, you're not, you're, you're not going to die ever from a panic attack. You just need to sit with it and just in the thick of it, tell yourself this is going to end. Yeah. I've had them a million times before. I'll come out the other side. I'm not going to go crazy. I'm not going to have a heart attack. It's fine. Yeah. And did but, you know um, at the time what was actually happening? Or No, and it all made the panic work, right. worse, right? Because sure, sure. Yeah, all this <laughs> so, stuff. I have hives and nobody knows why. So right? the doctor, yeah. yeah, the one time I went there and I'm covered in hives. They're all over my lips. And he gave me a needle. And he was like, next time your throat might close. Wow. So in my panicking, anxious mind, you know, you're already trying to protect yourself. Sure. And you're so hyper aware with everything going on in your body and your surroundings. I was so conscious with everything I started eating. And I mm. got to the point where I would eat anything and I would get a rash because I was so certain I was having an allergic reaction. Wow. Yeah. So I started cutting foods out. So I started cutting out nuts. I started cutting out shellfish. I started cutting out anything that was a common allergy, strawberries, mm -hmm. kiwis. And eventually it got down to where I could not eat anything. Right. And this is when I started getting when it got really bad. And my sister was getting sicker. She has cystic fibrosis. So okay. my, both my siblings were born with CF. And mm -hmm. I grew up as the middle child to them being terminally ill. So I think as well, growing up in that environment, my brain was already wired where if something medically happens, it's, it's an emergency. Right. So like if a CF person gets a cold, you could die. Right. So... You usually get admitted, you you get a chest infection, you get pneumonia, you know. Well, and it's, I think, you know, hard enough being a middle child as it is, <laughs> but then <laughs> well, a middle child. Think, yeah, we had a bit of a. Right. Well, so I'm I think sure. that's how my brain already was. Yeah, so yeah. then yeah. my as my sister got sicker, it just, it got worse. And it got to the point where the only way that I could eat something was by drinking. Mm. Otherwise, I would, I wouldn't be able to eat right. because I would, I would panic. And the panic was, for me, it was Avoid the panic. Avoiding the panic was easier than eating yeah. and going through it because it was so right. severe for me. Which is almost the the um, de, well, that is the definition essentially of agoraphobia is that fear of fear. Yeah, right? absolutely. You'll do anything to avoid the fear. So then, 2011 came. So two years into my business, and I'm trying to 
balance everything and still, you know, become the successful business owner. And mm-hmm. and I go to see Julia. She caught a cold from a home care nurse. Um, and they put her – she went into the hospital. So I went to see her on the weekend. Um, she said, come back on Wednesday. She wanted me to uh, do her brows and her nails and stuff. So I left on the Sunday and I got a call on the Tuesday that she had gone into a coma mm. and that because she had signed a, D- a DNR order – they removed the machines and they weren't going to save her. So I had to get there to see her. So I went to Bramford Hospital where she was and she died Wednesday morning. So after that, I, before that I was able to live, live <laughs> with the mental illnesses that I had and make it through, you know, with my little mm. coping mechanisms, I could get mm. by. I could come off as normal. But after that, it was like my whole world was upside down. Yeah. So... Julia, after our parents split when I was young, she sort of came on as my mother, mm-hmm. as a mother role. She was my best friend. She gave me the book that inspired me to start my company. She got me a laptop because she was like to to be a businesswoman. Right. Um, like she was pretty much, yeah, the best person that I've still ever known to this day. I was telling a story today to yeah. um, a friend of mine. One time she was in the hospital. She was about 80 pounds. Because she, she'd had two double lung transplants in her life. She got a pass from the hospital to go to the Eaton Center, waited in this huge lineup to get these Britney Spears limited edition Skechers roller skates for me that she knew I would love because <laughs> I was like 14 at the time. But she always did things yeah, like that. She was just yeah. like the best person. So, yeah, after she died, everything just kind of like went went nuts. So I started, yeah, drinking more. And it was so weird to me because I started to try to tell people, like, I, I talked to one of my aunts and I said, you know, like, I drink too much. And she was like, oh, you're fine. And mm-hmm. I kept hearing that. You're fine. Nothing wrong with a few drinks, you know. And it was even encouraged. Right. Like, and was it normal in your family to? No, it wasn't. No? But in the, so in the events world, it's normal. Sure. In business, a lot of the business meetings over lunch, they were drinking. And if people were drinking, then it was like, why are you having a drink? Yeah. And I already needed those drinks. Um, daily to be able to, yeah, cope with just my day-to-day life. And did you know at this point, I mean, I mean, you lost your sister, right? You certainly must have made some connection that there was, that you were grieving, that you were trying to handle I knew that, um, I was really grieving. Yeah. Um, did you talk to anybody about that grief? I talked to, yeah, some people, um, I was very close with my cousin Cheryl and I talked to her a lot about mm-hmm. it. I just didn't know. Like, I remember crying all night on my, my floor and texting her like, Cheryl, how am I going to ever get through this? Like, mm-hmm. I can't. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't stop crying. I can't, I can't stop crying. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I had a best friend, Kirsten, who was really helpful. I mean, I would often just she lived in Scarborough and I would get in a cab and go to her house because I would just be like, I, I don't I'm, I'm breaking down. And she would like, just come here. Mm-hmm. But um, and still, of course, trying to run my company, which already has its stresses. Right, and so is, and you were already very successful by this point. Right? Um, I wouldn't say very successful. I mean, like I was self sufficient. Right. And, right. Um, but it was just getting going that right. that year. Yeah. Yeah. So then, what what did you do with that? What happened next? How did you work through it? So yeah, so it just it kept going. So she passed in June, June first, and then by September. I was I was very unhealthy, so vodka on the rocks is what I drank. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine my body, you know, my diet mainly consisted of 
plain Miss Vicky's chips and bananas because I read an article that said those were the least likely things to be allergic to was plain potatoes and bananas. Right. <laughs> so I caught a flu and I got so sick. Mm. So four days went by and I hadn't eaten because I couldn't drink because I was sick. Right. So I couldn't eat and I was like, I'm already sick. Like I, can't, I can't imagine going through a panic attack right yeah. now. Mm. So... I got through it and I said, you know what? I need help. I can't, I can't keep doing this. So I went to CAMH. I had read about them. And again, they, they talked to mm. me for a bit. They gave me some pamphlets and basically said, you know what? You're fine. Mm. You know, um, if you want to apply to this program, it's like a, a meetings or something like that. And there was like an eight month wait list or mm. whatever. This is the uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health in yeah. Toronto, the yeah. psychiatric facility in Toronto. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, Went back the next day and mm. I was like, no, like you don't understand. I haven't eaten in days. Mm. Like I need help. Mm. And so the guy left and then he came back. He's like, okay, I called my boss and we're going to admit you on a form because you're a danger to yourself. <laughs> and then oh, now no. in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> like now I'm not allowed to leave. Like what's going to happen to me? They're going to lock me up. I'm never going to be allowed to leave. Um, everybody's going to find out. I'm not going to have a company anymore. Everything I've worked for is gone. Right. People are going to think I'm completely nuts. No wow. one will understand. Yeah. Well, and especially for somebody like you who, you know, as we established right at the top, seems to have a, not want to be told what to do <laughs> yeah, and a form exactly. by nature. And he's like, right? so why are you freaking out? I'm like, well, I want help, but I want to be able to do it on my terms. Right. Like, I want to be right. able to come and go. Did he pull a Dr. Phil on you and say, how's that working for you? <laughs> like, well, because, you know, it. it well, it, it was funny because he was like, OK, because you've been drinking you right, know, so much, right. we're going to send you first to an emergency hospital to make sure that you're OK and you're not going to go through withdrawal. And I got in the back of the ambulance and it was two young guys. And I said to them, don't worry, I'm not crazy. <laughs> oh, you said that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. And they picked you up at CAMH, at a psychiatric hospital, on a form. And and I was on a form. And you still had that that stigma, right? Yeah, 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 because I so badly didn't want anyone to... Right. Interesting. And do you think that that um, is what had prevented you from, or one of the factors that prevented you from getting help sooner before it got to this crisis? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I did not want to admit that, you know, I just had anxiety. You know, it was normal. But... How much were you drinking by that point? I mean, I knew how much each day that I could have without feeling hungover because if I passed that point, the panic would be worse the next right, day. Right. So I think I would have two vodkas on the rocks, which was maybe like two shots of vodka right. each drink. Every day. Every day, which, I mean, for a 100-pound girl that's got nothing in her stomach. Who's only eating bananas and kettle chips. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is, yeah, significant. Wow. But I haven't drank, yeah, now since 2011. So when you went when you went for was it a detox program? Or it wasn't what? a detox. No. no, it was like an in and out kind of program for women. So then, this was over the weekend, and then on Monday I saw the doctor, and she was like, "Okay, I'm going to take you off the form. Um, here's you know the rules, sort of thing." So I was there Monday to Friday. Weekends I could go home, but mm-hmm. it was the best thing ever. I mean, yeah. I saw a psychiatrist every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a medical doctor. I saw just I, I felt like. I was taken care of. Yeah. Like I was like, finally someone, someone's taking care of me. And I mm. remember one time actually that I had said to my aunt, you know, like I have really bad panic and anxiety and, and mental health issues. And she was like, just because your siblings are sick, you don't need to be sick, honey. Mm. Like it was almost like, so then after that, I kind of shut away mm. with it. Mm. But then there it was like, okay, it's being acknowledged. Like, mm. 
okay, they do see this. They do understand. They do mm-hmm. want to help me. And I was like, yeah. That your, that your issues matter too. Yeah. <laughs> you might you know, not be the middle child without CF. I might not be CF, dying, right? exactly, but I yeah. do have in my, in my body, you know, I'm dying. And I, I, I very much wanted to die living up to that right. before I went there. And I had, um, and uh, I was on the subway going to an event we had one time and I maybe two weeks before I went in there and there was a sign, one of those advertisements, and it was for Cystic Fibrosis Canada, and it had a girl underwater gasping for air, and it said cystic fibrosis is like drowning on the inside. Mm. And I just broke down crying, and I jumped up on the seat, and I ripped down the advertisement. (laughs) There's these guys sitting there all looking at me like, what is wrong with this girl? But I just like – because I had read – some of my sister's diary entries and it was saying like she kept all these journals. She was like, the one thing, like if there's a God, I just don't want to die struggling to breathe. Right. And so in my mind, seeing that sign, I was like, you killed her with her worst fear after a life of suffering. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, I just was like, I don't want to be here anymore. If she's in a better place, which everyone kept saying to me, why don't I go there? Mm-hmm. Like, why am I staying here? What do, mm-hmm. What's the point? Were you suicidal? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. No, I would stand on my balcony in my own place, just stand on a chair and just cry because I didn't have the, the, the guts, I guess, to jump over. But also, too, I felt so badly because my parents, being the only healthy child, mm. and now I'm going to kill myself and leave them with, you know, if my brother CF is still terminal, there's no cure. Mm. So what, they're going to have no children? And my father struggled with mental health and especially after losing my sister. And he felt that it was largely his fault that he didn't save her, which is ridiculous, you Mm, know. But as a father, you have that mentality, especially when you've cared for someone for so long. Yeah. And I just, I couldn't do that to him. So I felt so torn because I wanted it to end, but I I couldn't do that to them. How much of your... Uh, how much of your struggle at this time in your life did your parents know about and did you talk to them about any um, of it? Did... Not so much because I, I I couldn't tell my dad because my dad was already so mm. fragile and so broken, mm. as broken as a person can be. He was just, yeah, so I didn't want to worry him more. And he didn't understand. I mean, I had been with him and had a panic attack. And called my friend Kirsten in the car beside him and got like a rash up my arms. This is when I got really bad rashes. And he had no idea like what was going on. Because if you're not familiar with panic attacks, you have no idea. And of course, his generation would never have talked about it. And the fact that like I was like, I need to get out of the car. I need to get out of the car. Like pull the car over. Mm -hmm. And like having to get out, like being saying like, I can't breathe. I need to go to the hospital. And he actually, he took me to the hospital that day. Mm. But still in his mind, he just thought that he had no idea what it was. Right. Even so, when he would visit me at the hospital, I don't think he really grasped what it was that I was just having. Interesting. He did come in to visit, though. He at, did, yeah. Cam H. Yeah. How how was that? He <laughs> well, my father's is a very sweet, sweet man. Um, he's an artist, mm. so we went in like the art room and did different drawings and stuff, mm. and then we went for a walk around because it's by Kensington Market. But no, yeah, no, he came to visit. My mom came to visit. Because sometimes it's, you know, I remember it very distinctly. Um, psychiatric, inpatient psychiatric care is a bit of a different environment, yeah, right? Is. And not everybody's so comfortable uh, in those <laughs> yeah. environments. Um, I was really lucky. I, I I think that I had a 
great floor and a great team of nurses and doctors yeah. and like it was the best experience. Yeah. Like, I was yeah. like kind of sad to leave. Like, yeah, no, you sure. Really make your meals and <laughs> <laughs> well, not only did awesome. you not only were you finally, I think, addressing something that had probably been going on for a very long time. Yeah. Um, you finally, like you say, you you were valid. You got validated yeah. for your struggle. Yeah. Right. So you were there for a month. I was there for a month. Yeah. And then you leave. And what happens then? Like recovery doesn't um, just happen in the hospital, of course. No, it do- it doesn't. No, but I came out a lot better. Hmm. First of all, I wasn't drinking because they said to me, if you drink while you're in this program, you're kicked out. Right. It's against the rules. Hmm. And I remember thinking like, I said to her, at all? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that was just so outside of and your- it was a, it was around this time, actually, because it was a week before my birthday, which is September 29th. And I said, hmm. well, what about on my birthday? Right. <laughs> and she's like- Addiction takes a holiday no, on your birthday. Yeah. you can't drink at all. <laughs> I was like, Whoa, yeah. It's crazy. So did you go through a withdrawal period? Um, no, I didn't. No. Not at all. Um, but no, I haven't. I haven't drank since. So I came out and I was a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. I had so much other coping mechanisms- that I had learned, mm. um, CBT and stuff like that. And then mm. my doctor that I was seeing there, this this um, female psychiatrist, she was like, we don't normally do this. She's like, but I'm really interested in, in your case, so I'd like to follow you for, you know, some time. So mm. I would go see her still once a uh, week. An outpatient yeah. Cases, yeah, so which was great. Mm. So I still had her, and everything just kind of got better from there. Mm. Um, I just, I was healthier, so I was stronger, and I had dealt with a lot of, the grief. A lot of the women on my floor were, were suffering from PTSD. Mm. So it was a lot of like dealing with, you know, those issues, those traumas that we pushed down. Mm-hmm. So that was really helpful because mm. I was I kept trying to push it down instead of letting right. the, the grief come out and being like, Okay, mm. I can I can grieve her. How long so had it been by that point since your sister had died? She died in June and it was September. In September. That's a, still a really short, you know, so uh, when my mother died a few years ago, I thought for some reason, nobody told me this, but that a year was supposed to be it. You know, you get through the first Christmas without her, the first yeah. uh, birthday without her, the first stuff. But then when it got to the second, it's like, okay, but you should be over it by now. Nobody ever told me that, but I didn't realize it took me a full two years to grieve. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't I didn't know that that was part of the process. It right? took me a very, very long time. Yeah. So where are you with, uh, what year is this? 2011. 2011. So it's 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 you've had some distance since then. Um, what skills did you take out of your hospitalization at that point to, that you've carried forward with you? Um, definitely the CBT. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, which I use all the time. I mean, how so? With things, just reevaluating your thought process. So when mm. something happens, even with like dealing with business or employees and things like that, it's like before you jump to a conclusion. Okay, well, how did you get there? Right. You know, like, let's look at the evidence instead of your emotions. Right, right. And did you yeah, feel sort of prior reacting. to that that you were a slave to your, your emotions um, or reactions? Just, yeah. You know, and my brain would just automatically go worst case scenario. Right. So it's like, okay, you have a rash in your chest. Oh, my God, you're dying. You have anaphylactic shock. Oh, you need cat- to get to emergency. Catastrophization. Yeah, yes, yes. Absolutely. All the time. Yeah. So that was often just, okay, what's the more likely scenario is that you are very anxious and so your chest is getting red. Right. Go take a cold shower. Um, so how many? How many people, in some way or another, work for you? So we have eight, over eighty five hundred. Eighty five. So eight thousand five hundred <laughs> yeah. people. Okay. So that's a small city. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I mean, it doesn't. Business doesn't really stress me out for the most part. I find right. it really fun. 
But no, yeah, it just, I was able, of course, I was no longer drinking. So right. I had all that extra time. So how did that change? Because, I mean, you mentioned that that uh, a significant part of your business, the event mm-hmm. piece, mm-hmm. Uh, involves alcohol pretty, pretty After regularly. That, I never really wanted to go to them. So I went to a few events and I was like, I couldn't wait to leave because it was so boring. Mm-hmm. And like after being in the hospital, like we we would generally go to bed early and get up early. So I was on this new routine that I really loved. Mm-hmm. So I stopped going and I would assign a manager. And the funny thing, I guess, about having 8,000 people work for you is that there's probably somebody else who can <laughs> well, do it. And I had a, a, a best friend. She's still my best friend. She actually, she works for the company, right. um, Kirsten. And she would go to most of the events at that time. So she would right. work and she knew everything that was going on. So she would cover for me with a lot of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was. Yeah. Did the people in your company, in your businesses, and in your broader networks know about uh, some of the struggles that you were just talking mm, about? No, not for the most part. I mean, I, I, I didn't tell anyone for a long time about it. Mm-hmm. But I think about maybe two years ago, I started opening up about it more. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the response? A lot of people said that they had issues. So mm-hmm. the majority of people that I've talked to have also had, you know, issues with it or some form or another. So like a girl that worked for us, her mom commits suicide. Mm. Um, a girl in her office is bipolar. Another one has bad panic and anxiety. So like they talk to me about it. Sure. We talk to things, you know, one was talking to me this morning about a weighted blanket, right. stuff like that, yeah, yeah. which is great. I mean, I'm able to help them and tell them, you know, things that I went through. And yeah. I think that it, yeah, I mean, it, it's still it's tough, right? Because sure. you're you're being vulnerable and taking away, you know, some of your power. You mm-hmm. you, especially when you're an entrepreneur and you put yourself out as the face of the business, you mm-hmm. craft an image mm-hmm. and showing your weaknesses and things like that. Mm-hmm. You feel almost takes away from it, but mm-hmm. I think it's more important to help people. And if sharing that can do so, then. Mm-hmm. I actually think it makes you a lot stronger oh, right. in most respects. I do, I, uh, but in that, in that, it's exposing your vulnerability yeah. means that you could get hurt, yeah. and that takes a hell of a lot of strength <laughs> to say, "Yeah, I could get hurt, but I'm going to do it anyway." Yeah. Right? I think that's actually really brave and very strong. Thank you. You sharing your story, especially being so successful at such a young age, makes me excited to see what you're going to do next. <laughs> like it's like, <laughs> well, you. if you could conquer all this, then what's you know what are you going to do now? So, so what are you going to do now? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty content doing what so you do. So I've been writing a book. A book, okay. So about yeah, about halfway through. Um, it's a bit about my past and. A lot about building something from nothing. Mm-hmm. It's it's very geared towards young women. So I speak at different women's events and I get asked a lot of the same questions. Like, mm, sure. how do I do this? How do I, you know, a lot of people are scared to take a chance or have trouble finding their passions. It's about, yeah, building business with nothing, yeah. um, overcoming loss and using those things to fuel, you right. know, things in a positive way instead of driving it to negativity. Mm. Because I can sort of see, you know, that point in my life where, it was either I was going to use everything that had happened to a positive or it was going to be like one of those episodes of, what's it called? Intervention. Where they're right. like, and then <laughs> something happened that changed her life. <laughs> but, you know, I think all the time we encounter these moments in our life where it's we ask ourselves, well, what do we what do we do now? <laughs> like, yeah. this, this is it. It could yeah. go either way. Right. Mm-hmm. We could let us let it 
tear us down uh, or we can yeah. do something with it. We can build something great with it. Yeah, absolutely. So the book, um, when when do you expect? Like, I, well. I'm hoping it'll be done January. Oh, okay. That's pretty yeah. soon. Yeah, I've been yeah. plugging away on it. Yeah. Um, I have a friend that's been helping me as well. Her name's Laura. She's in Montreal. It's funny because I we were friends growing up. I had a dream about her randomly. And I reached out to her that she was writing my book with yeah. me. Yeah. So I reached out to her. I'm like, how did I dream? And she's like, I'm a writer in Montreal. Oh. And I was like, oh. <laughs> she's like, I could help you. So she's been helping me with different aspects nice. of it and doing a lot of things. But it also came out that she suffers from a lot of different mental health issues, really? which I had no idea about because in school, she was just this beautiful, wonderful, kind girl. And she was like, no, I hid yeah. away with terrible, terrible anxiety, yeah. PTSD and stuff like that. So it was like, yeah. So what would you tell other young girls <laughs> to, 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 to springboard off of one of those questions that you get asked a lot, <laughs> but um, what would you tell other young girls who are dealing with or might be dealing with a panic disorder or an anxiety disorder like you were all those years ago? I would definitely get help. You don't have to live with it. I mean, it's not something that you have to try to get through all the time. There mm. is help out there. I mean, sometimes you have to keep asking for it, mm-hmm. but it is there and it's as common as it is, it's not something that you have to live with. Yeah, yeah. There and is much better ways to live. There's you know, much better life ways. Life is short. You <laughs> might as well live it to the best of your ability while you're here instead of, you know, suffering half the time to make it through. I mean, we're all going to have anxieties and we're all going to have stress, especially if they want to get into the world of entrepreneurship. Right. There's right. going to be a lot of ups and downs, but yeah. no, you definitely don't have to suffer. Yeah. And there's so many people out there that you could talk to or you can, you know, reach out to them that probably have experienced something similar. Yeah. What would, I mean, you can never really obviously enter into anybody else's mind, but um, for your sister who gave you that first laptop to go off and be a businesswoman. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think she'd be proud of everything that you've accomplished? It's funny because I read an email from her the other day, an old email, and she was saying how proud she was of me for going to Australia by myself. Like she was just, so yeah, she would be for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I have a foundation called the Julia Lyons Foundation. So she she would love this. So growing up, she had two double lung transplants, like I said. And so mm-hmm. we grew up in Stratford. So she has to, you have to relocate within a certain distance of the hospital performing the transplant because when they get the organs, you have to be at the hospital within right. like an hour or something. Mm-hmm. So being in Stratford, we had to relocate. Luckily, the second one, she stayed with my aunt in Pickering. But you incur something on average like $35,000 in additional expenses. Mm-hmm. So you have to go to the hospital several times a week. You have all these extra things you have to do. So the normal family, and I mean, the regular person is on disability. You can't work mm-hmm. when you have this. So that means you're relocating. You're paying for everything back home. You're not working. Mm-hmm. You usually, if you're underage, then you have a parent or a guardian that's relocating with you as well that can't work. Mm-hmm. So the foundation supports supports people like that going through transplants. So once mm-hmm. that have to, we, we help cover their expenses for their rent, their transportation to and from the hospital, things like that. So we set that up. We take care of it. Um, yeah, CF Canada is great, and we've worked with them a lot over the years. But unfortunately, one of the things that I found out years ago is that they can't give money directly to a patient. Okay. So doing different fundraisings and things like that, I had different people you know, reach out to me asking to help fundraise. And sure. I would, of course. I would send it out to my network, and I noticed that a lot of our clients would donate, and they would donate substantial amounts of money. Right. So I was like, well, you know, if I can keep Julia's spirit alive and doing good in the world— 
something, you know? And that's something that she would really love because even so, like, we would spend a lot of time at Ronald McDonald House as a family mm-hmm. while she would be in the hospital. So creating, like, a, a nicer environment for people like that going through similar situations. It's beautiful. So where can yeah. people find more information about the, the foundation? Uh, JulieLyonsFoundation.com. All right. And yeah. what about all the other, you know, <laughs> thousand different businesses that you have? Uh, where can people find more uh, information about you and, and your work? Um, they can follow me on Instagram. It's Emily Lioness, L-Y-O-N-E-S-S. Well, and, Emily Lioness, I like that. <laughs> it links to all my different companies and... Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show for the the, but mostly for the work that you're doing for your openness for being so uh, vulnerable with me. I I think it's really inspiring to see somebody as successful as um, influential as you are, uh, who's who who is just like the rest of us has (laughs) has been through a hell of a lot of stuff, and and you made it out on the other side, and and I I think that and if I uh, can, we all can. I think we all can. (laughs) Thanks so much, Emily. Thank you. That's it. That's my conversation with Emily Lyons, CEO of Femme Fatale Media Group, among various other companies. Uh, and wow, what a what a person. You know, I'm so grateful that she came in and was so willing to be vulnerable in the way that she was, to share her experiences of, of hospitalization and uh, of addiction, of recovery, uh, you know, her struggles and, and her... Uh, her, her journey to try to understand herself and her role and, and her passion to continue to build. You know, she's it was just there's so much about her. I could have talked to her forever, I think, uh, that I just loved uh, our conversation together. If you liked it, too, and I hope that you did, please share it. Uh, share it on social media. You can tag me if, if you like. I, I'm on everything at Mark Hennick at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, everywhere else. Uh, so tag me and let me know what you thought. Uh, head over to Apple Podcasts as well if this is where you're listening to so-called normal today. Scroll down to the bottom, leave us some comments down there, and then uh, scroll back up to the top or do this before you scroll down and, and leave a comment on the bottom. But go back to the top and leave a star rating and subscribe. Do that stuff too because that really matters a lot in, in terms of supporting the show and getting uh, the podcast more visibility, visibility on that platform. Now, if you don't have Apple Podcasts, however, that's okay because we're everywhere else too. Uh, we're on Google Podcasts if, you, if you're on uh, using an Android device. Uh, we're also on Stitcher and Spotify and iHeartRadio and uh, YouTube and everywhere else. So wherever you're listening to the show today, uh, please share it uh, with, your, with your friends and family and, and networks because I think Emily's story is, is so important to hear. Uh, if you want to connect with me, you can go to any of those social media platforms that I mentioned, or you can also go to my website, markhennick.com. That's M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K.com to learn more about my public speaking, my advocacy and media work, and all the other stuff that I'm most passionate about. Uh, and you can also tune in next week. You can get the notifications if you do that subscription to turn in ne- tune in next week or for the next episode uh, for more so-called normal conversations on my podcast, which it, it turns out is also called so-called normal. So if you're still listening all the way to the end of this hour that I'm prattling on here, then I'd like to thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Entertainment One and my, my uh, editor Dave for putting it together for making all this possible. So we'll talk to you next time on So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. <laughs>